Hey, all, and welcome back to Building the Ballot, the early baseball era committee. Uh, we are now up to episode four, and today we're going to be talking about pioneers. And I have a friend of mine with me to, to talk about this today. It is Joe Williams, uh, a longtime Sabre member, uh, goes to the Hall of Fame weekend every single year for decades and decades. How you doing, Joe? Hey, Adam, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Uh, so uh, Joe and I are co-chairs of the Sabre 19th century overlooked uh, baseball legend committee. But uh, beyond that, uh, why don't you give everybody an introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, my name is Joe Williams, and um, I've been interested in the Hall of Fame going back uh, many, many years. Um, in the early 1970s, my uncle moved to New York City, and he left me some of his baseball stuff. And one of those uh, items was a 1952 edition of Ken Smith's Baseball Hall of Fame, which uh, when I first got it, I colored in it and you know made a mess of it. But I probably picked it up a year or two later when I could read, and uh, and that kind of got me started. So um, I've been searching for uh, potential Hall of Famers uh, my whole life, basically. And '87, I got interested in going to the induction ceremony, and I've been going every year, including the last two. Which uh, even though it was canceled, I showed up. So I I, didn't, I, I went to the field last year and uh at one o'clock and took my picture to prove i was there and you know and <laughs> but uh uh so I'm, I'm a hall of fame nut but uh you know i did some writing for scenes heads uh you know uh i don't know it was 13 years ago or so so I, I started associating with mike lynch and scenes heads a little bit um i got involved with sabers uh connecticut smoky wood uh, uh smoky joe wood chapter so i helped run that chapter for many years and um always been fascinated with 19th century baseball so uh when uh, peter mancuso asked me to chair the overlook legends committee i think it was back in 2007 or 6 um to create the process uh you know i was excited to do so and um that's one of the uh um big prize that I participated in over the years, as well as be uh, doing research on Deacon White and writing a bio for uh, uh, Sabre on his life, um, which, you know, it was 20,000 words when I wrote it, but I had to cut it down to eight uh, for the book and for the uh, bio project. So that was an ordeal. Uh, but, um, and I, and I, and recently I uh, helped um, raise, I raised funds and I wrote the, uh, uh, a monument for the Dave Stalker uh, baseball memorial series. Um, put a white family uh, monument in Cape uh, New York, where the uh, three brothers and a cousin all uh, played baseball either through the higher levels of the game from 1868 to uh, you know when Deacon retired in 1890. So. Nice, nice. Yeah, so quite a bit there. I know you were heavily involved with. Uh, the Deacon White induction many years ago. It was so great to watch that from uh, from over here. And yeah, that was just a, a wonderful moment for 19th century baseball enthusiasts and and for you just to be able to hang with the family like that. Yeah, I mean, the induction weekend was great. I got to uh, spend time with um, with the family and I, I helped advise uh, Jerry Watkins on his speech that I was going to give the next day. And it, it was a great moment when, you know, I've been going to inductions for all those years and when I heard my name in a speech, it was pretty and remarkable. So uh, 
of course it rained and my kids couldn't hang out to hear it. So they left before the speech. And so I was there with our buddy, Bob Gregory, who, you know, we know passed a few years back, but um, it was definitely an interesting weekend. That's awesome. Yeah. So today we're here to talk about more pioneers. So who knows, maybe this will be a short one because we'll just kind of put, we'll say Abner Doubleday needs to be in the hall of fame and move on with it. Is that what we're going to do? <laughs> yeah. Abner yeah. Doubleday. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. So why, why is it important to be discussing pioneers, you know, 150 some odd years into the history of baseball here? Are there still pioneers that we have yet to uncover and honor in the hall of fame? I, I, I think pioneers, you know, when they talk about pioneers, um, you know, kind of let me define what I think of pioneers because, um, you know, I think the pioneers that, you know, we're, I think you're referring to the latest foundation for the game that is played today, but in, in the game piece evolving. But when I say pioneers, I think of not just the origins of the game, but I think of the amateur era, the national association, the 19th century and dead ball era, um, uh, uh, black baseball players that played prior to 1920, as well as executives and whoever, um, even the Latin leagues prior to integration. Um, and then, you know, there's individuals that broke barriers since 1947, like, uh, like Minnie Minosa and Buck O'Neill, Kirk Flood, Bill White, so on and so forth. So I, I think that, you know, pioneering doesn't stop. And, you know, there's been significant improvement in equipment, uh, the ballpark experience. Uh, there's been pioneers related to that. Um, statistical analysis, um, even advancements in the medical field, like Tommy John surgery. So, I mean, pioneering has not stopped. So, you know, you know, I guess we're going to talk about the, you know, the category of executives, which, which it seems to be today, but, you know, in theory, it's supposed to be executives and pioneers. And and I kind of think that needs to be separated to, um, um, let the executives have their little category and then we could have one called, I would call it con- contributors and pioneers. Um, Cause they kind of over, they can overlap and, and it separates them from the, uh, the suits that um, sit behind the desk, uh, either in the commissioner's office or the old presidents or the, um, you know, some of the other past executives, the GMs and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. It's kind of weird to to look at like Candy Cummings and see him as like a executive slash pioneer in the Hall of Fame when when he was a you know a player and and he he is known for pioneering the curveball and did he did that on the field. So it's kind of strange to see him in the executive category with like uh you know the all the the GMs and owners and whatnot. So how we have a few pioneers, well, we have a few executive slash pioneers who are in the hall of fame now for their, uh, their pioneering contributions. They're not executives. Do you want to go over those really quickly and maybe talk about how good these selections have been so far? Like, have we been honoring the right people so far? Yeah, sure. So if you go to their website, it comes up with 37 executives. And if you look at the 2021 yearbook, it says 38. And, uh, the reason the difference is that Frank Grant, you know, is considered a player on the website, but 
in the book since they didn't have any stats for him. I think they just dumped him under executive. Mm-hmm. And and in the past year, both they would say executive and pioneer, but now it just says executive. Um, I I don't know why they dropped that. I mean, it's easier to uh, label and their on their website maybe so that the field just says executive rather you know keeps the field shorter. I don't know why it says just executive, but um, in theory it should be executive and pioneer right now. But um, so so right now we have let's say thirty seven. Let's put Frank Grant as a player. No, let's forget about the yearbook. So there's thirty seven executives, but we have Alexander Cartwright and Chadwick in thirty eight who um, I would consider pioneers. Uh, Ken Cummins in 39. Albert Spaulding, you could say he was an executive, but he was also a pioneer. Um, you got Harry Wright in 37. I mean, in, uh, George Wright in 37, and then Harry in 53. And then in 2006, we have uh, Saul White, who, um, I mean, I, I consider him a pioneer. He, he made several contributions to the game he played and everything else. He I don't consider him just purely an executive. Mm-hmm. How good have these selections been? I mean, if, if you, if I think they're all fine uh, selections. I mean, Cartwright is the one that has the biggest question marks next to it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't feel we should kick him out. I mean, he did, um, he did, you know, go up to his buddies and say, Hey, let's organize a, a team and I'll, and I'll, a promise to recruit people. And, you know, so the formation of the Knickerbockers was important. And, you know, um, he was behind those beginnings. But other than that, you know, he, he did play. He did umpire games in those early years before he headed off West. But um, the other selections, I believe, are fine. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think they're all great selections, the other ones. Excellent. So before we start jumping into the, the list of players, what should we be looking for when evaluating a Hall of Fame pioneer? Like, Well, I mean, did, what kind of impact did they have in a game? Did they, or were they first to do something um, that, you know, became part of the uh, fabric of the game? Uh, did they uh, play in a time where you know, that, that was the highest level of play, you know, that led up to leagues. That's why, you know, I look at the uh, pre-Negro uh, National League players as building the foundation to have these leagues. So a lot of them, you, you, know, you can consider them pioneers, and, you know, as well. So um, you can't, I don't think you really could easily define what makes a pioneer. I think you have to take them each on an individual basis and you know, I did kind of break it down, you know, that, you know, the players in a you know, national association could be considered pioneers because Major League Baseball doesn't consider the National Association a major league. Mm-hmm. I would like it to be, but it's it's not. So, do, you know, do, you know, we, I know we could talk about Ross Barnes and his eight years in the National Association and the National League. But if you don't count the National Association years, he doesn't have very many years at all. And he's still short of the, you know, the the 10-year minimum to qualify as a player. Mm. So, um, so there's there's many different um, things we can we can choose to to uh, determine if someone's a pioneer or not. 
Excellent. So we're going to start jumping into the, the groupings of players that we have here. And I'm just going to tell the listeners right away, I'm leaning a lot more on Joe because we don't have stats to go by for a lot of these players. And uh, well, not, not only just players, uh, these pioneers, candidates, however you want to refer to them. So, uh, you know, these, in some cases, we're going to be going back to like the 1850s. So let's buckle up and we're going to start with the, uh, the origins, origins of baseball group. And I think the, the most obvious candidate there is Doc Adams because he was on the pre-integration era committee ballot last time around and missed election by just two votes. And uh, do you think that this is the time for Doc Adams that he, he gets on again and goes in? I sure hope so. I mean, I, I don't know why they wouldn't put him back on the, the ballot. Um, uh, I mean, he just missed. So, if, if you know, if, if they don't put him back on, there's it, it'd be very surprising. Will he get in is a different story. It depends on the makeup of the, the committee that's voting on them. I know Peter Morris uh, has been he was uh, influential in getting some votes get, um, for uh, Doc on that committee. He didn't get it. They didn't get enough. But, you know, the 10 out of 10 of the necessary 12 is for a first time person on a ballot especially the one since they haven't been involved in the game since 1862 makes it pretty remarkable. And I remember when he um, failed because I was working closely with Marjorie Adams, um, Doc's great granddaughter. And I, I called her right away after I heard the, the announcement and she was bummed, but you know, I, I had to put a positive spin on it because it was true. It was, it was a positive, outcome even though he didn't get elected because it's pretty remarkable that the the backing he did get and of course you know laws of baseball came out you know in february that (laughs) right after the vote you know less over two months after the vote that right there i think would have solidified his um election if that if those documents were made available say october or november um before uh the committee vote yeah. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about the laws of baseball and maybe even starting with, with just some general info about doc period? Yeah. You know, doc was a uh, doctor, you know, he went to both Yale and Harvard. He, um, he uh, became a member of the Knickerbocker baseball club uh, a month or a month or so after the Knicks were formed. You know, and, and he eventually became the president of the club. Um, he represented uh, the Knickerbockers at various conventions. Um, you know, he one big thing, he, he created the shortstop position in, in either 1849 or 1850, which is kind of a big deal. I mean, imagine baseball without a shortstop. Um, you know, and then um, in May of 1857, um, he was uh, elected president of the uh, annual convention of the National Association of Baseball Players. And um, that's when they uh, uh, came up with the laws of baseball, which, you know, John Thorne calls baseball's Magna Carta. And, um, you know, and that the document was written by Doc and, you know, it lays out the base pass at 90 feet. It created a fixed pitching distance of at the time it was 45 feet but the idea of a fixed pitching distance was i I think important um the number of men to the side was nine you know nine innings rather than scoring the first to score 21 runs um 
it dealt with revolving, you know, the team, you know, players jumping from team to team. Um, you know, and then, you know, they went for auction, <laughs> the doctors went for auction, uh, in, uh, in April of uh, 2016, they sold for $3.2 million. So, mm-hmm. um, Marjorie has seen those documents in, in early January that year, but she had to sign a confidential agreement, confidentiality agreement so that she couldn't tell anyone about it. She didn't tell me about it or anything until after they became public. And, um, she was quite excited about them, but it would have been great to, to have those, those, uh, documents available to, before the committee vote. Um, it was so close. And then of course, you know, they changed the, uh, errors committees, uh, timeline and then COVID pushed it off until, uh, December of 2021, the next vote. So, um, and unfortunately Marjorie passed, um, recently, so she's not going to be able to be there if he gets in. So. Yeah. Uh, the, that's the thing about these era committees, like the longer we wait to induct these candidates, you know, people are, are missing out on it, whether it's, whether it's the player themselves, the, the candidate themselves, like Buck O'Neill and Rennie Minoso to, you know, family members, you know, we're, we're losing Marjorie, which she, she worked for years and years to get him on that ballot, to get him that close. And, uh, I'm just hoping to see him get on the ballot again. I think that it's it's pretty obvious that he's a compelling candidate based on just how quickly he shot up the ranking there. And I think that, uh, you know, he's got the best claim to, to father of baseball of, of pretty much any of the pioneers out there. And uh, I don't know, it sounds like a Hall of Famer to me. Yeah, he's he's my, actually my number one um, uh, you know, person individual to that's not in the hall. Um, I think he's the most important one. Um, Bud Fowler would be number two in my book, but um, Doc, Doc needs to get in and, and hopefully, uh, you know, he'll be elected in December. We can't really, we, we can't create the makeup of the committee. So we don't know how they're going to look at him. And um, so the 10 votes doesn't mean he's going to automatically get in. So, um, I mean, with this committee, supposedly going to be every 10 years it's kind of important that you know it'd be nice to see him get elected now because a lot of people that have supported his candidacy and and um you know the time is right i mean and 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 me thinking that they should create a contributors and pioneering pioneer category i mean i think that would be great if they if that happened beforehand i don't know if that that's going to but i think that is important because like Buck O'Neill is going to be uh, on, on one of the ballots, and um, you know where do you put Buck? You know, and I think he, I think Buck is a contributor, and I think that uh, uh, it would be it would be great to have th- that clarification on the categories. I mean, personally, I don't think that you need the categories. I just think you you know you can get in the Hall of Fame for whatever you know and be listed you know, on the roster and alphabetical order. That's fine with me, but they do have categories. So um, I, I think that contributors or pioneers need to be separated from the executives. I mean, a pioneer or a contributor can be an executive, but I mean, the, the rules of baseball d- does say that you, you know, where's the rule? It says here, um, those whose careers in- entail involvement in multiple category- categories will be considered for overall contribution to the game of baseball. 
However, the specific category in which these individuals shall be considered will be determined by the role in which they were most prominent. So, you know, and the categories they list are player, manager, executive, or umpire. But then the historical review committee says, shall determine that individual category as a player, as a manager, or an umpire, or as an executive slash pioneer. So the word pioneer is still in the rules. It's just, it's kind of hidden there. <laughs> yeah. So like Buck O'Neill, for example, his playing and, and managing can also be uh, contributions to his, his case. They don't have to like, I guess in the 2006 uh, Negro League election, I guess they could only uh, consider the Negro League career, which is why Minnie Minoso missed out. So luckily it's not that that strict uh, here. And you can actually acknowledge the, the full body of work uh, for these candidates. So further candidates in, in the uh, origins category, uh, that's our category, of course, that's not a Hall of Fame category. Uh, anybody else that you think uh, is, is compelling uh, in terms of the origins of the game? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know, I know this. The upcoming ballot only has ten names, so I'm not going to push for any other uh, in the origins category. But there are a couple that are worth looking into. One, the first one being William Wheaton, who um, really the timeline of baseball for me starts in 1837, and that's that's because of uh, William Wheaton and him creating uh, the rules for. Uh, uh, the, the Gotham Club of New York in 1837, which later many of those rules were uh, translated to be, become Knickerbocker rules because we, and well, along with William Tucker, were on the rules committee for the Knicks when they created the first uh, set of written rules, um, our, our written rules that still that were existed. I mean, I would love to find those 1837 documents if, uh, if they were around, but um so, so Wien's a very interesting uh, person for that reason. Um, the, the, the only thing is we don't have any written documents. So it's, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I don't champion him like I, I do a doc. Um, but he, uh, you know, so he, he played ball with Gotham Baseball Club. They, uh, he ended up becoming uh, a founding member of the Knickerbockers and uh, their first vice president. And, um, you know, but he didn't stay long. He, he was gone, you know, shortly after uh, the performing of the Knickerbockers. And he ended up going to um, going west to going to California for the gold rush in 1849. And uh, he stayed out there his, the rest of his life, pretty much. So um, he wasn't around that long, but he's a, a very important figure in the history of the game. Um, the other one would be uh, Lewis Wadsworth, who uh, um, was a, a, an excellent baseball player in the 1850s um, with the New York Gotham or the Cotton Club of New York. And he, uh, you know, he, uh, in that the uh, 1857 convention was a strong proponent of the nine men to a side. Well, no, he, he's, he, he, um, he, uh, he recommended that instead of seven innings, the game be nine, which the Knickerbockers won seven innings, um, but he was representing Knickerbockers and he won against that. And, and it actually got uh, uh, adopted. So, um, 
his fight for the, the nine inning game um, was very important in the history of the game. Um, it's also possible he may have been the first professional player too. Uh, you know, he, John Thorne um, said that he received emoluments to join the Knickerbockers. Um, and he says it's the earliest player moving that wrinkles my nose, which I thought is a clever uh, line. And so you know, there's that as well. So, I mean, pioneers, you're not going to, you don't have a body of stats and all that kind of thing to, to make your case, but, there's key moments in the history of the game that that uh, that we have built upon to create what we have, and he's one of those key figures that um, people should know about. Yeah, to compare it to the the players that we have stats for, you might say that Doc Adams has both the peak and the longevity then, because he was with the Knickerbocker Club for a very long time, retired with them, and was honored by them after his career too. So it's not like uh, Wheaton, who was off pretty quickly, uh, although he had a, a longer career earlier th than that too. But yeah, I, I think it helps show why Doc Adams maybe stands above the others, although like you said, they are also very compelling candidates. Well, I mean, for Doc, he, he created the shortstop position and and, uh, you know, the other, the 90 feet between the bases and all the other stuff that we mentioned before, it's just, these are rules that, you know, we, that we recognize the game for, you know, if we don't, I mean, 90 feet between the bases is beautiful. I mean, imagine if it was 88 or 92, I mean, the game is so much different, you know, so 90 feet is just a perfect number. Um, uh, Hopefully, uh, Major League Baseball doesn't change that. <laughs> right. All right. So let's move on to our next section, which is uh, early black baseball. And uh, in our previous episode, we covered a few candidates. We covered uh, Bud Fowler, Grant Johnson, George Stovey, uh, Octavius Cato. And I know you have them on your list as well. So where would you like to start on that list? I have the feeling it's Bud Fowler. Yeah, I mean, Bud Fowler is really someone that I many years and you know this actually may go back before Deacon White and you know Deacon White I discovered when I got my baseball encyclopedia and they had a special section on a national association and I got out my notepad and calculator and tallied up all the leaders and all the different categories and Deacon kept popping up and I thought wow Deacon what a cool name you know I thought I was probably thinking of Deacon Jones like a tough guy or something and um not realizing what it really meant, but, um, but, you know, I had, I think I have, I read, I learned about Bud before, um, uh, Deacon, um, and some of the, but I don't know if it's in the, um, Ken Smith book that I have sitting actually sitting right next to me, but, um, I've known about Bud, you know, for a long time. And I just amazed that he didn't get a better look in, in 2006. Um, uh, I, I did ask one of the voters um, why Bud didn't make the final 39. And he basically said he moved around too much. So I, I wasn't happy with that answer because I know why he moved around too much. Right. Basically he had to do with the color of his skin, you know, he, you know, um, so I, that doesn't, that didn't really sit well with me. And I mean, I understand he did play all over the place in a lot of teams, but it just makes him even more interesting. You know, he, um, you know, it was not only the, you know, the first, uh, 
uh, African American in organized baseball. But you know, he he was, uh, he, and he wasn't just that. He didn't just do that. I mean, he he was a great player. You know, he played for many years. Um, he, he started out as a pitcher basically, and then you know, people think of him as a second baseman now. I think, but. You know, he managed, he was an organizer of leagues and teams. He, you know, he did all kinds of things. He even wrote a song, a baseball song. <laughs> I, think the, I think the Hall of Fame recently stumbled upon the uh, sheet music for it, which, um, which is now in their collection. So uh, he was kind of uh, a jack of all trades. And he, he was, uh, to me, he's just one of the, the, the term pioneer doesn't fit him in many, but anyway better i think he he clearly belongs in the hall of fame and uh, you know i don't know if the hall is going to put him on the ballot and i'm really hoping because of him being the overlooked legend for us in 2020 may help him there um i know i know john thorne's a big bud fowler fan i don't know if that helps um and i think his name is getting out there more so maybe he will make the final 10 i don't know but i i really would like to see him on the ballot and get a chance excellent yeah uh i, I when you said he's number two on your list um, i just wanted to let you know that I, at the end of this i'll be asking you for a top five candidates so it sounds like between uh, adams and fowler we've got a couple already so let's kind of move on to some other candidates from, from Black Baseball. Do you want to talk about uh, maybe one that we maybe do have plenty of stats for in Grant Home Run Johnson? Yeah, Grant Johnson. Uh, he's another one that didn't make uh, the final cut um, down to 39, I believe. Um, yeah, he, he was – there was 94 people uh, – Oh, he was he, actually no. He was one of the nine Korean Negro League individuals on the ballot, but he didn't make the cut. Mm-hmm. Um, Grant and Soul White did. Frank Grant and Soul White. But I mean, he's one of the greatest shortstops in the history of the game, and he was probably the best player in black baseball for a ten-year period. And to me, <laughs> you know, you know, plus he, you know, is that great net, nickname, Home Run Johnson. Uh, you know, he was involved with the, the uh, um, playing and, and he founding the Page Fence Giants with Fowler and and uh, managing it. He's just uh, a great ball player, you know, and uh, he played in the Cuban Winter Leagues. Um, um, if you look at his stats on scene heads, I mean, it looks like he has an OPS plus of 158 and 405 career games. So, uh, that's, that's just, there's probably, you know, a lot more that can be added to that. So to me, that's I just think Grant Johnson, yeah. <laughs> that, that, uh, has really been overlooked. Um, you know, even he was overlooked by our overlooked legends committee that we, that we done. I, we finally added him to the finalists, um, you know, last year and he did fairly well. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people think of him as a dead ball era kind of guy, but his career started in, uh, late 1880s, early 1890s. So mm-hmm. uh, Grant Johnson is someone that could make my top five um, um, just because he was such a great player. Nice. Now, was he ever a teammate of George Stovey? Uh, Grant Johnson? It, yeah, I, th- I think I must be thinking of Stovey and Fleet Walker. 
Yeah, he did, Flea Walker and Stovey were teammates. Yeah, okay. but uh, it's possible that they were team. I do I do not know that. Let's talk a little bit about Stovey then. George Stovey. Hmm. He, he's been making some uh, some ground in the Overlook Legends Committee uh, as well. Like he's been climbing up the the rankings every year, and he looks like he could be a, a future selection. Yeah, I mean. He's been considered the uh, greatest uh, African-American pitcher of the 19th century by many. I mean, a few will dispute that, but, uh, you know, he was a lefty. Uh, wherever he played, he, he excelled. We do have stats on him. I mean, uh, you know, what's his world record that we have? We have him as 60-40 and 40 with a 2.17 ERA in 102 games in the top minor leagues. Mm. You know, um, you know, he he was he was uh, you know an outstanding pitcher, and he just he just you know obviously he wasn't going to play in the majors. Um, color color line was drawn after the Fleet Walker incident, and um, you know, but he did play for many of the top black baseball teams, and um, you know, and then he did reach the highest levels of the main the minors, and he excelled. And um, I find him to be a, an interesting cat. Uh, um character and um actually there's gonna be some news tomorrow i got uh an article about some images i found of stovey's gonna be published so um we have a glimpse of he sort of looked like later in his life um not as a player though um but stovey is someone that um i'm very high on especially considering all of just two people associated with um, black baseball in the 19th century in the Hall of Fame, and that being Frank Grant and Soul White. There's no one else. So, I mean, we got, there's, there's 50 years of, you know, 40 plus years of baseball, black baseball in this country that we know of and we have some documentation of, and there's some great players that, you know, are, are not getting their due. So I think there needs to be some representation of more uh, of these greats in the Hall of Fame. And Stovey would fit in that category. I mean, especially if most consider him to be the top black pitcher of the 19th century. Right. Think about how many 19th century white pitchers are in the Hall of Fame. We don't have a single one in a uh, single black one in the in the Hall of Fame. So, yeah, I think Stovey is compelling for that reason. I mean, are there other 19th century African-American pitchers that come to mind? Well, there are a few, um, and I'm not like say I'm an expert on any of them, but there's um, someone like Harry Buckner, who mm-hmm. began in the uh, 19th century. He was also a great hitter. He's probably, he probably might have been a better hitter than he was a pitcher. Um, and there's, there's Bill Selden, who um, was, was successful on where he was he, when he played. Um, and I know that there's, I know there are, there are others, but those are the ones that, that come to mind. Nice. Uh, so last episode, we talked about Octavius Caddo and where we kind of came down. Uh, first of all, you can let me know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, and then second of all, um, we came down on probably like a Hall of Fame human and American and incredibly important. Uh, but we were unclear about his baseball contributions and if that was enough for a case for Cooperstown. What, what are your thoughts on him? Well, 
I, I think he was definitely a Hall of Fame person, and, oh. I, and I definitely think he's a, a, a truly great American figure in the history of our country, um, you know, based on, you know, his character and, and what he fought for. But he was also a baseball pioneer. You know, he was a founder and a team captain and player for the first great black baseball club. Um, the, you know, there were other clubs, but these are the ones that has been well documented. Uh, you know, he, you know, the club that he founded was the 50 N Baseball Club of Philadelphia, and that was in 1866, and um, became you know the top black nines in the country. Um, you know, he was for assimilation. He wanted to play white teams. Uh, the 15s attempted to become part of the uh, Pennsylvania Association of the Amateur Baseball Players. Um, and, um, you know, but they were denied. They, they had a, they withdrew their application, so they wouldn't be blackballed on paper. But, you know, that that's kind of a, you know, that's like the first, you know, um, uh, line being drawn to keep, um, you know, blacks from playing with whites, you know, uh, integrated ball. Um, but, you know, with the help of the athletic club of Philadelphia, they, you know, there were interracial games and, and, and then that led to other interracial, uh, teams playing each other. And so his, uh, his belief of assimilation, uh, happened you know he didn't you know he passed away you know after he was assassinated and the, unfortunately the Pythians um folded shortly after and you know um you know his accomplishments I, I think there's enough there I think there's enough there to make the case that he was a, a big baseball pioneer and I don't I, I just only I think he enhances the Hall's roster honorees I don't see why 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 we sh we shouldn't take a look at him why, why he shouldn't even get a chance i think i think he he should be a candidate so at some point excellent that's certainly fair enough uh very compelling uh how about any other candidates from from the group of black baseball uh, uh pioneers that you have here well i you know, there's others. I, there's no one else I really strongly consider right now, just because the the ballot is only going to be ten, and we have other errors. We have the the, the Negro leagues, which be there's so many candidates we have because of the stats, and now they're in major status. And then there's a bunch of great, you know, pre-1920 black players that should look be looked at too. Um, in the 19th century, um, you know, there's uh, you know, Fleet Walker, obviously, he, you know, his statistics and um, his play, you know, maybe doesn't warrant a plaque, but he was a pioneer. Um, I've, I've Personally, I have not championed Fleet Walker to this point, but, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't deny that he was an important figure and maybe he should be looked at. Um, I do like Clarence Williams, who was a longtime catcher of the Cuban Giants and um, he played baseball. I mean, his career spanned, you know, from look at 1885 to like 1912. Um, you know, he was a great ball player. Um, he's someone that could be looked at. Um, then you have, 
you know, the owners or the promoters, the, the managers of the clubs back in the, the 19th century, you know, Frank Leland, maybe someone or SK Govern or, and there's, there's, there's others that, um, could be looked at. Um, but right now I'm focusing my attention to mainly Fowler, Johnson and Stowe. Excellent. So let's move on to, to Latin baseball. You have a few candidates listed here in your notes. Um, I'm curious because I'm not exactly sure how to, how to treat Latin baseball. Obviously a lot of players are playing in Latin America because that was where the opportunities were, but at the same time, it is technically the national baseball hall of fame. So I'm not sure exactly what should be, uh, covered by the National Baseball Hall of Fame and what should not. Obviously, if there were uh, American players that went to Latin America to play, that feels maybe a little bit different than Latin American players who were playing in Latin America. Maybe it is. I don't know. Help me get through this. I, I don't know what to think here yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, today we have an international game. I mean, a large percentage of our players come from Latin America and they are the pioneers of Latin American baseball. Um, also, a lot of those players could have come to the, you know, played, uh, in, you know, in the, you know, in the Negro leagues. Um, some chose not to. I mean, they didn't like, I read like Pedro Sampeda, who was a great hitter, uh, did not want to come to the U.S. mainland because of the racism. I mean, do we, disqualify him from being eligible because he, he didn't want to deal with racism. I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, right now, I think most of them are not eligible, but you know, a lot of the players in, in those Latin leagues were made up of um, Negro league players, uh, white major leaguers. I mean, they, they probably, could qualify as major league caliber leagues. I, I, you know, and that's something that may be being looked at at some point by major league baseball or our friends at seems head or whatever. But right now, I don't think it's something we, we need to focus on because we do now have the opportunity to elect many great players from the Negro leagues that got missed in 2006 and before. Um, but I think down the road, it may come up where should we be looking at, you know, the Pedro Sampedas, um, uh, of the world. So, um, it's definitely, it's something interesting to think about. Yeah, it certainly is. And, uh, of course, uh, people may know his, his, uh, slightly more famous son, correct? Is that, uh, Orlando's dad? That is. And, um. Uh, some some say that his father was a better ball player than him, so it's it's unfortunate we we didn't get a chance to uh, see him play. But uh, um, it, it's a, I just I love all aspects of the history of the game, and and not not just I, I just love to expand my reach of of knowledge beyond just the traditional uh, white major league. Oh, that's that's awesome. All right. So we may, you know, in 10 years, maybe we'll come back and talk about that group of 
of candidates, but uh, let's move on to the, the amateur era slash national association. You've got different lists here for the pitchers and for the position players. Which one would you like to tackle first? Uh, I guess we can start with the pitchers. All righty. So I, I don't know if I have any candidates that I, I, I think of as hall of famers yet. So maybe there's a few that you can try to convince me of here. All right. Well, let's review who we have. So, I mean, some people that I was thinking that, that come up um, or, you know, has some, some stats to look at um, one being Tommy Bond mm-hmm. and then Creighton who's purely a pioneer, Bobby Matthews, who uh, you and Jay weren't too impressed with in the <laughs> previous episodes. Um, Dick McBride, who I really, really like. Um, uh, I mean, people know him from the National Association, but, you know, he was a big part of baseball in the 1860s with the athletics in Philadelphia. So he, he's a very interesting uh, person. I, some say the first 300-game winner. Um, if you add all his amateur uh, games up, um, Joe Sprague, who was a pitcher in the 1860s that came after Jim Creighton, and who uh, historian Eric Micklage believes was better than Creighton and should be in the Hall of Fame as well. And then there's, uh, you know, I throw in George uh, the Charmer and Zettleton. I, I, I never said his name out loud so, but he he had a long career between uh the 1860s and the national association so uh you know I, I think they're all uh interesting pitchers i also just mentioned in my notes jim mccormick and will white they a couple of guys who got their starts in the 1870s who uh have some stats um um i don't really consider them pioneers although will white was one of the early curveball pitchers uh and of course um he was deacon's brother so i i can't i try not to champion him because i feel like i have a conflict of interest but uh those are kind of the candidates that come out of uh what would be called the the to me the amateur era or the the national association pitchers um dig into creighton first then since he's the the pure pioneer of the group yeah i mean his style of pitching, um, you know, changed the way game, the baseball uh, uh, was played. And uh, let me read something from uh, um, that Eric Micklage wrote about Creighton in, uh, in an article in Baseball uh, Journal. He said, there's no disputing the evidence that he was the first to effectively pitch inside Instead of simply feed the ball to the batters, he possessed speed and developed control, which was a difficult combination for batters of early baseball to adapt to. That mixture absolutely did not exist until Creighton, and he deserves a plaque in Cooperstown as a pioneer. So I, th- I think Eric summed it up pretty well of what the importance of Creighton was to the game of baseball. The problem that I've always had with him was how do he, he died at the age of 21. I mean, right. You know, like my one of my you know boyhood I, I don't idols, but someone that really piqued my interest was J.R. Richard, who had ten years of Major League Baseball, and, and he's not considered a Hall of Famer. But if you look at Jim Creighton as a pioneer, you know he did change the game based on his pitching style. I mean, prior to that, the object of the game was to feed the ball to the 
pitcher so they could hit, you know, and put it in play, you know, uh, where Crane was trying to strike him out, get him out. So um, he's definitely an interesting character, um, and he's definitely a pioneer. Yeah, I had always gotten hung up on the fact that it was such a short career for him, but I guess with pioneering, you have to think of it differently, not in terms of the candidates length of their career but maybe the the length of the impact that they had and and the one thing that he's known for was such a major thing because as we know you know hitters used to just be able to call for the ball where they wanted it and uh creighton was the first to be like uh heck no you're gonna deal with whatever i give to you so that was that was kind of a huge moment for baseball yeah i mean and same thing i mean that's the whole thing with alexander cartwright I mean, he did one, basically one thing, and that was help form the Knickerbocker Baseball Club. It was his idea, I guess. You know, I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but he got the ball wrong. You know, you know, creating maybe a little bit more dramatic. Or uh, you, you know, see the change on the field um, more so. But um, yeah, these some of these pioneers, they just. They were the first to do sun and they had a very brief moment in the sun and, uh, but the, their impact on the game, you know, you can't deny it. So do I, do I personally want, I think Creighton should be on this 10 man ballot. No, I mean, there's too many other more interesting candidates to me, but if there was a, we had a pioneer election, I could get behind them. So yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned Joe Sprague too. What what was it that about Joe Sprague that came after Creighton that uh, was compelling? I don't know much about him at all. Yeah, I mean, a lot a lot of uh, you know, Joe, Eric Micklage, um wrote an uh, excellent article in Baseball Ten uh, about um, the two um, and Sprague and he and th- and this I'll read what he he wrote there. He wrote he attained a twenty four game personal winning streak, never lost a match in an Eckford uniform and helped the club capture consecutive national association championships and the first two silver ball trophies in 1862 and 1863. He then moved to the rival Atlantic club of Brooklyn, played sparingly and was part of two more championships in 1864 and 65. So Spriggs, here's another person. I think he started pitching in like 57 or 58, but he became, uh, um, uh, more no- known after serving in the Civil War, he he um, he uh, became very dominant, and he was on the best teams in, in baseball at the time. And he didn't lose. I guess he, you know, he he re- he retired from the game without losing. I think twenty four <laughs> games in a row or something. Wow. So, and, and he threw in the the Creighton style. He was he he, you know. He wasn't just feeding the ball. Makes sense. Makes sense. So moving on to some players that we we have some stats for. Uh, was there something that Jay and I were missing about Bobby Matthews? Is he more than 19th century Jamie Moyer, as I called him? <laughs> well, I mean, if, if you we picked the Hall of Fame in 1880, do you, do you think you know that Bobby Matthews might be a Hall of Fame? I mean, he was one of the best pitchers in the National Association. You know, he led the league in strikeouts a few times, the ERA, and 
you know, he was the first pitcher in uh, professional league history when he, when he threw a pitch to Deacon white. Um, so, and he, you know, he was one of the, you know, Cummings was the, the first to throw a, a curve, but Matthews was right there and, and he was equally successful um, with that pitch. So I, you know, I kind of consider him a pioneer and in, in with the curveball, even though he, is not getting credit to be as the first, but I think he's an important pitcher in the history of the game. And people in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia historians just love Bobby Matthews. And <laughs> so it's, um, you know, I, I, I don't really champion Bobby Matthews. Like uh, I made like a Louis Tiant, who I think, especially since he's alive um, right now, you know, but I have no problem putting Bobby Matthews in the hall of fame. He's just not going to make my top 10 right now. How about uh, Dick McBride? You said you really like Dick McBride, who I believe is a, a Civil War veteran. Uh, that's how far back he goes. Yeah, he, he was. Um, he, I really like Dick McBride. I mean, you know, you, you, you take the fact that, you know, what he did in the National Association. I mean, they, he led the athletics to the first the championship in 1871 but you know he was with the team I, I think he joined the team in 1861 and you know became one of their stars right away and you know i uh he he led the the national association of baseball players and and runs scored <laughs> and uh it was 1866 with uh what was it, 160 and then the following year he scored 265 finished second and so he was he was hitting the ball and he was you know as well as pitching and you know if you add up his his uh, win loss total if you count the amateur it's his record is 323 and 106 so that's a pretty pretty good record. Um, uh, so Spalding um, would would pass him to become the, he would be the second 300 game winner if you if you figured in the amateur games and his record was 349.97. So uh, a little bit better, but, you know, very close. So McBride, McBride is just – the whole athletics team of the 1860s intrigues me. And there were a lot of great players on those teams. And McBride was their leader and, and, and star pitcher. So I, I, I like him. I, I think – I would definitely like to see him get a better look someday. Yeah, I, I don't feel like he has any momentum at the moment. But uh, even though – that's that we do have like 149 and 78 with a 271 ERA uh, in the National Association. Uh, he completely disappeared, it seems, after the the uh, four games in the National League. Do you know what happened there? That was at age 29, too. So, um, what what year was that? Was that 76? Yeah, that was 76. Yeah, he probably played with the the Athletics. Left the they went independent in 1877. So he, uh, I'm guessing he – I don't have it in front of me, but I assume he was playing with the team in 1877 as well, um, like a lot of the players did, like Reach and stuff like that. Um, I, I don't know, but, you know, he had the whole decade of the 1860s plus the National Association. And uh, there's just, just no – there's no players. You know, Deacon White's in and, and, and George Wright, but we don't really have any any players or – uh, or anyone really from those eras. I mean, yeah, you have Cartwright and then, you know, and that, that's about it. You know, it's, you know, we talked about some of the other 
people, but, um, you know, Cummings was a good player, but he's there for the curveball. But there's, there's no other players that represent, you know, the 1860s, there were a lot of great ball players. Right. Uh, so you had mentioned Tommy Bond before. Uh, so interesting thing about Bond is his, his dominant numbers very early in his career that then uh, dropped off as the mound moved back. Is that something that should be considered a blemish to a possible Hall of Fame case, or does he have something else on his resume that would help resolve that? Well, I mean, I, I think that what he did is, is, is you can consider him. I think he's he has a, a resume that is worthy to look at. Um, people that may take that into consideration, if, um, assuming that it was the case, that that's why he didn't thrive. I, I haven't really looked at that in great detail, but, um, you know, he, for the, when he did pitch, he was, uh, you know, he may have been the best pitcher in the game for a few years there. So he won championships. He won the first pitching triple crown. He, you uh, and, and this, I had to update one of our bios recently because, you know, we had, he finished his career with five strikeouts per walks. Only Chris sale has a higher ratio. And I had to update that to add Jacob the Crumb. So I'm a Mets fan. So I was happy to do that. There you go. Uh, any other pitchers we should touch on before moving to the position players? I don't think we really need to talk about the charmer. I just think he's an interesting character. Um, I, I guess he wasn't the smartest tool in the shed, but um, I think that. That, I think that covers it. Um, yeah, we're not good. We don't need to talk about McCormick or Will White. I mean, you guys talked about McCormick already, and and if you guys don't think McCormick deserves it, then Will White doesn't. But I, I have no problem putting either one of them in. But um, we don't need to talk about them because I don't really consider them pioneers that, that much. Nice. All right. So moving on to position players, I'm curious about any pioneering aspects of one candidate in particular. So Jay and I were talking about Ross Barnes, and obviously his numbers in the 1870s are absolutely magnificent, but he does not reach the, the 10 years um, that would be required for a Hall of Fame uh, case, uh, according to the rules. Now, of course, if he is considered a pioneer, as we've seen with, with Doc Adams and other candidates, the years before 1871 can certainly be considered. So if there were some pioneering aspects of Ross Barnes' career, he would be eligible in, in that respect, uh, in addition to his playing career. So does Ross Barnes have a case as a pioneer as well as the great player that he was? Well, I mean, just because he played prior to the National League or the National Association, I consider him a pioneer. Just because, I mean, that's kind of the way they looked at. It. They were they were the early early stars of the game. So, I, I consider them a pioneer in that way. The way you you want me to look at it, um, I mean, like a Dickie Pierce is probably a better example of a pioneer compared to Ross Barnes. Um, um, but you know, Barnes, you know, <laughs> uh, I guess you consider him a pioneer in the, with the fair foul hit, which because basically they they got rid of it at some point <laughs> and I'm sure he, he all his success may have played into it, but, um, and, and I'm not absolutely sure on that. So, um, 
don't quote me on that. But um, I, to me, Barnes is, uh, you know, a player. I mean, I, 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 if you're looking at, at the way you are, I don't, I'm not going to say he was a pioneer. Um, he did something specific that made him, you know, change the game. Uh, but his dominance as a player in the National Association and the fact that, you know, he was a member of the uh, uh, Rockford Club, uh, the Forest City Club of Rockford, Illinois. Um, you know, um, you know, I, I think that plays in it because you know that Spalding defeated the Nationals and Barnes was on that team, and you know it was kind of a big deal at the time. It was a, maybe a pioneering game, um, but. Um, it's a difficult question to answer because uh, he does not have quote eight major league seasons based on the definition. So uh, his only possibility would be a pioneer, and they could just say he was a pioneer based on the error he played and just you know list him that way. But um, you know that's just that's just my thoughts on Boris Barnes. I absolutely believe he should be in the Hall of Fame. I just think he was a tremendous player, and uh, and he, he did play more than eight seasons. So. It's true. He. It's not that he didn't play the seasons. They just weren't major league seasons. It would have certainly helped his case if he was able to hang on a little bit longer. But like you said, that illness uh, deprived him of his 30s. And we do have those 1871 num- 1870s numbers forever, though, just an, an incredible body of work in a short amount of time. Uh, you touched upon Dickie Pierce as having a case as a pioneer. So why don't we jump into him next? Another player credited with uh, innovations at the shortstop position. Yeah, I love Dickie Pierce. I mean, he really took the share. He took the the reins of, from Doc Adams and really became the first great shortstop in baseball history. You know, he 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 basically re- revolutionized the game on the field and at the plate. For you know, he 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 moved around uh, on, around the the infield, uh, you know, he didn't just stay in a fixed position. He, he, uh, um, he kind of adjusted to where he played based on who the hitter was at the plate. Um, you know, he was considered a scientific hitter, someone who got his ball on his bat and, you know, he's been credited as, you know, and I'm not, I'm not sure if it's true, but he's been credited with inventing the butt, the bunt, uh, possibly the fair foul hit and, uh, sacrifice bunt, the squeeze play, you know, so, those are pretty important parts of the game. Um, uh, and, and then he was a great player. I mean, he, he his career uh, started, you know, in the 1850s and, you know, lasted through the uh, 1870s or eight, actually 1881. Um, you know, he just, he had, uh, well, it was 1881. I am mean, looking at something else. Yeah. Um, more than 1871. Yeah, he played 1883 in the minor. Yeah. The minor. So he, he had a long career. Um, you know, when, and when you go back and you read the New York Clippers, you know, and around those times and, he, and after his career, he, he's, you could see how high a regard he was. I mean, that, you know, you, we have the stats and the stories and everything, but, you know, you can see how they were written about in the paper, you know, um, you know, what Harry Chadwick said about players and, stuff like that, you know, it's really, um, it's really important to, to look at and consider and not just base it on what it says on, you know, a baseball reference or, um, you know, that kind of thing. And Dickie Pierce was one of those players, you know, as was Deacon White. Um, so if you could have read about 
1870, he was already considered, you know, the best catcher in the game before the National Association even started. And um, the same can be said about like Dickie Pierce and Joe Start and, you know, some other players. So um, uh, to me, Dickie Pierce, uh, may, may, he may make my top five. Um, I just don't, the, the length of his career, um, you know, the, the play on the field, especially in the 1860s. I mean, we got a glimpse of him in the 1870s after he was played for several years and um, just a great ball player, played on the, some of the best teams in the, you know, of his era and um, to me, just a, a, a pure pioneer, um, great, great player and uh, should be in the Hall of Fame. Here's a tremendous statistical quirk about Dickie Pierce from the data that we do have. So he played in the 1870s. So we have war figures for him and <laughs> his war per 162 games is 4.8, which is like all-star level. And that's powered by absolutely ridiculous fielding numbers. Like I, I know he, he invented the position. So more or less, so he must be pretty good at it, but we've, we've got him at 26 fielding runs per 162 games, which is just absolutely elite. And the thing is, this is from a shortstop age 35 to 41. So I don't know how much to read into it, but it's unbelievable to see those numbers from that age at that position. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to honor people from this era, and I and I strongly think we should, Dickie Pierce is a no-brainer to me. He's just he's just someone that have, should have a plaque in, in Cooperstown. All right, let's follow along. You mentioned Joe Start. I, I like Joe Start a lot, too. Uh, incredibly long career as a first baseman. Uh, what are your thoughts on him? Same thing. I mean, you know, we look at his home run totals. What is he, F20 or something in the majors? But... I mean, 1860s, he was considered a power hitter. So, you know, uh, I mean, he led the, the league in, uh, you know, runs, you know, what, what do we got here? Uh, oh, I guess he scored 824 runs in 194 games uh, in the 1860s. Uh, uh, you know, he, he was just, he was a great hit to that. And then he had a long productive career. He hit over, you know, 311 times or something in the National League and, you know, and he also led the league in fielding percentage several times. And, you know, he was, he's been credited as being the first to play off the bag. And, you know, again, like stuff that Chadwick wrote about Star or whatever they written in the New York Clipper. I was very positive about Joe Star as being the guy that, you know, was the guy in the field. And um, that's why it was called old reliable. You know, they could count on him. And, and he did, they did that for <laughs> when he, when he played for, 27 plus years um just uh someone that gets overlooked and you know it's it's disappointing because you look at the numbers and they 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 may not jump out you know there's not as much black ink as you would like to see and all that but his reputation as a fielder and what he did in the 1860s to me really puts it over over the top and i i think he's an important figure in history of the game that's been overlooked yeah he has I mean, he almost has 1,500 hits even in the National Association and National League, and that's with not starting that career until age 28 uh, and the short seasons, too. Uh, the uh, Just the massive amount of compilation of numbers that he did, and he did it at a great clip, like 121 OPS plus just for the numbers that we have. And, yes, we are excluding his peak, which I think uh, – 
you touched upon some of those numbers for the 1860s there. So it, I, I just am very compelled by him because he, he showed that he could do it once, you know, crossing into the, the professional area too. So it's, it's yet another candidate that's compelling. There's, there's just so many uh, from all different categories on this ballot. This is, again, Joe Start is one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast. We have so many candidates coming from every which direction, and he's just another really compelling one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've done some studies with hits with some of these guys, and, and I think Start would have easily gotten 3,000 hits if, it, if the schedules were different and if you figured in his 1860 play, I mean, he, he, he would have had, he would have been one of those guys. And, and, you know, I think, uh, like I said, if you started the hall of fame in, you know, 1880 or something, uh, there's no doubt he would have been in it. And he was definitely one of the best players of his, his time. All right. Let's jump over to another player who began his career in the 1860s, Lippman Pike. Mr. Pike power hitter. Home yeah. run king. Yeah, he's another one who, um, you know, he played a lot in the 1860s, um, was productive in the National Association um, and in the National League. Um, he, um, I have no problem with him being a Hall of Famer. I think he, he is one of those guys who who um, should really be considered. You know, if we had a, a election that considered – um pioneers or and players of of his generation i think he would uh he should make it now he moved around a real lot uh especially in the 1870s i I believe was he one that just kind of chased the best contract i know that he was considered uh, an early professional player as well yeah i mean offhand off the top of my head I, i don't know um you know, I, I don't know if his feeling played a part of it. You know, there was some, um, uh, you know, I, I really can't answer that. Um, yeah. I know I probably come across stuff in the past, but I forget more, more than I know these days. So um, I really couldn't say. Yeah, just uh, from the numbers that we do have, again, from 1871 on 158 OPS plus. So we're talking like, and, and he led the league in home runs four times. I mean, they were lower numbers. Uh, he was leading with four home runs, seven home runs, but still 158 OPS plus is 158 OPS plus. And that's, that's again, another interesting candidate. I don't know if he gets anywhere near the top five here, but it, it, it just again shows that we're certainly not done looking at interesting candidates here. Uh, how about Paul Hines? He's one that uh, I think we both like. I think you might be higher on him. Uh, tell me why you really like Paul Hines an awful lot. Again, I just think he's one of those early stars that, that doesn't get enough credit. I mean, his career did start in a national association, um, although he had a long uh, career um, after that. Um, but, you know, he was just consistently one of the best players in the game. Um you know, he, and, you know, I've looked more into the fact that he may be the baseball's first deaf major league player. Um, and it's, and, and some say, you know, he was hit with a pitch in the 1880s or something, but there's articles as early, I believe is uh, 1879 saying he was deaf. Um, and I, I have him saved on my computer somewhere, but, uh, 
but you know, not even considering that. I mean, he, you know, he was baseball's first triple crown winner. You know, he he won a couple batting titles. He was on championships teams. He was part of the first World Series winner. You know, he played with Old Hoss Radburn in Providence. You know, he was with them their entire existence. Uh, you know, when he retired, you know, he, you know, only Cap Anson and Jim O'Rourke had more hits. You know, and you know, he was ranked highly in other all the other offensive categories. Yeah, I, I just think he. You know, we have you know, we have Sam Rice in the Hall of Fame, and we have you know, uh, and, and I and, and I'm not saying oh if he's in he should be, but I mean, I kind of, when I kind of look at him, I think of players like that. People don't really you know talk much about Sam Rice, but Sam Rice was a great player, and I think Paul Hines for his time was was a great player. He just gets overlooked by the Kim Kellys and the you know some of the other more. Um, got some guys that do have some more black ink or, or whatever, but I think I think Hines is uh, an interesting guy, and I'm not sure we consider would consider him a pioneer. I just I think him as a pioneer because he started out in the National Association, and he, you know, and it's and if he was the first death player in Major League Baseball, that's kind of an interesting uh, thing. Um, but um, to me, I, I've always been a fan of Paul Hines, and I would like to see him get in the Hall of Fame someday. And he's one that would easily have 3,000 hits. I think you did a something on Hall of Stats. Anyway, he would have had like 3,900 hits or something. Yeah, something like that, just because of the short seasons. <laughs> People don't realize yeah. like 2,100 hits in the 1870s and 1880s. That's that's ridiculous. Um, yeah, that, some people really think that like George Van Haltren or Jimmy Ryan are compelling candidates. But to me, like when you're looking at 19th century outfielders outside the hall, you know, other than like, I, I'm probably higher on on Browning and and Stovey, but uh, then next is uh, Paul Hines for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there's there's a there's a few. I, I mean, I like Van Halter and I like Ryan, but um, I agree. I like I, I like Hines better. He played earlier, and I kind of like go in chronological order in my head. You know, it's like who's been waiting the longest to get in. You know. Um, I kind of, you know, I have mixed feelings about that now because I like to see some of the living players get in, like Dick Allen, before he passes, you know. And um, so I wouldn't want to uh, keep some of those people waiting. Um, but um, if they were great and, you know, they're very similar, I, you know, I prefer to just clean up the further in the past than uh, the more recent in the past. Right. Luckily, on, on this uh era committee we're not really worrying about living candidates it's been so long although yeah. as we learned we have family members that are holding on for these things too so yeah and and, and i and knowing the jerry watkins and uh, todd watkins and the, the the other family members of deacon white it's it really is a big deal to the families and um they were so appreciative of, of saber and and um just being supportive of the Deacon White and, um, and, you know, the Overlook legends and as well as stuff like Peter Morris wrote and, and um, just being recognized. It was just a tremendous thing for the family because they, they longed for him to be in the hall of fame and uh, they never thought it would happen, but when it did, it was just a big deal. And it was, it was really a great experience for me. And um, it was, you know, it's kind of a blast and they really loved it. Uh, Cal McVeigh, does he fit uh, in the category with with all of these other players? Where he, I, did he play at all before eighteen seventy one? 
I think he played a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Uh, he he did, and you got to remember he was part of that that great. Oh right, the, um, the Red, Red Stockings. Stockings. Yeah, I totally forgot that, that. All those games in a row in 1869 and 1870. So that right there, you know, puts a little check mark next to his name as you know to start looking closer at him. And then the fact that he played with the Big Four with Barnes and Spalding and Deacon, you know, in Boston and then Chicago, you know. Um, you know, when he retired, he was like the career leader in hits and RBIs and, you know, <laughs> but, you know, back in those days, they weren't being paid too much. And, you know, and the going West was a big deal still. And he went West to California and, and that's what, it was age of 29 and, yeah. you know, made a, a life for himself. And, you know, he played a little bit in California, played some ball. I found some box scores on, you know, I'm out there. Um, but, you know, um, it, it's a different time. I mean, it, you know, you're not going to find too many baseball players today retiring at 29, just, you know, and, and going to do something else because they're going to get paid now. And back then, you know, yeah, they got paid better than the average American, but, you know, there were other opportunities out, out West and, and stuff like that. And, you know, he, he just, he just left the game at an early age, but the years that he did play, you know, he was a dominant hitter, you know, and he, and, you know, I'm looking at something right here that George wrote once said, he said, said in 18, in 1909, he said, I should say that Cal McVay was the greatest player being a good catcher, first baseman, right fielder, change pitcher and strong batter, a hardness player and strong in any of the above positions. So, you know, I'm not saying he's Otani, but you know, he, he, uh, you know, he did it all. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, he's not going to make my top five and probably wouldn't make my top 10, but again, if there was a pioneer election and we were trying to clean up some people that have been waiting a long time, I would really strongly consider Cal McVeigh. Yeah. He's uh, certainly got some eye popping stats and, you know, even, even threw in that Otani esque five and two record with a 1.52 ERA one year. So Let's go back to the 1860s again. And uh, there's an interesting catcher, uh, Joe Leggett, who my understanding of Leggett is everything that we say about uh, Jim Creighton was possible because Leggett was there to catch him. And they were really kind of a package deal. Maybe they were there, I mean, different positions, but maybe they're the, the Molitor Trammel of the 1860s where you can't really have one without the other. Yeah, I mean, uh, Creighton needed Leggett because he needed someone to be able to catch the ball. I mean, Leggett got closer to the to the batter than all, some other catchers in, of his day, and you know, he was able to handle the speed of, of Creighton, and you know, plus, you know, he, you know, he encouraged him. He 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 provided. He was a mentor to him. He, I think in the off season, he told him to throw like a weighted ball around, you know, build a arm strength or something, you know, it's, he, um, you know, Leggett was the first great catcher in baseball, um, baseball history. And he, uh, was a great hitter, great leader, a very disciplined, um, player and leader. Um, you know, he, he represented, uh, Brooklyn in the fashion, uh, course games back in uh, 1858 the first all-star games uh you, you know he was he served in the, the military during the civil war he he's an interesting character you know he 
you know, he, he broke his leg, uh, I think it was 64 and then 1866 was his last season. So his career was, you know, 11 plus years, but you know, by the time, you know, a catcher in those days, no gloves and everything, you know, 11 year career is a long time, you know, right. You know, play a game with uh, no gloves and, a, you know, so he's definitely a pioneer and, uh, you know, yeah, I kind of think of Creighton and Leggett going hand to hand. And I know that, you know, uh, if you ask Eric Micklage about Joe Sprague, he would say Waddy Beach, his catcher would also, mm-hmm. you know, it was important uh, to Sprague's success. And then, you know, then if you look at um, Kenny Cummings, you know, his catcher was Nate Hicks, who, um, was a real tough guy back in those days. And he uh, was able to get right under the batter and catch, uh, you know, dig that ball out of the dirt. And, uh, you know, and then, and then, you know, after, you know, if he wasn't catching Candy Cummings, he was catching Bobby Matthews, another great um, uh, curveball pitcher. So catchers and pitchers in those days kind of went hand in hand because really the best players in the game were the catchers in those days. Um and, uh, you know, they were able to allow the pitchers to have success because they were able to, to catch the balls and, and, um, those kind of, that kind of stuff. So, um, like, it's definitely an interesting character. Um, he doesn't make my five, top five or top 10, but if you were talking pioneers, someone I would seriously consider. Nice. Any other, uh, Position players we should touch on here before moving on. Um, let me take a look. Um, we have a couple of my favorites here that were previously uh, overlooked legend selections too, like Charlie Bennett and Jack Glasscock. I'm wondering if they have something extra that would be added. We, we covered them statistically already in, in episode two, but if there was anything uh, to add to their um cases like uh, i know glasscock was referred to as king of the shortstops and bennett had a park named after him in, in detroit and things like that yeah i mean you know bennett did have you know he was a pioneer in catching equipment um you know i mean anyone that you know i mean i think some some define pioneer error as pre-1893 so it depends on when you to find the pioneer era. I listed Bennett, um, uh, you know, under my little list here for today, just because his, you know, people that started in the 1870s, the game was still young and national league that was just sorting through some things. And, but, you know, he, he wasn't credited with him in the chest protector. It was 1883, I believe. And, you know, he, he caught more games than anyone before his accident. Um, great, great power hitter in those days, great fielder. Um, I, I, you, you can say he was a pioneer, but you know, if we were, if he was going to be on a ballot, they would list him as catcher. So, um, but you know, I, I think Bennett is one of the top five catchers not in the hall of fame right now. You know, Deacon was my number one catcher before, uh, but you know, Bennett is, um, someone I'm very interested in to see, uh, be one of the, uh, next catchers to get in. Nice. Uh, so let's, let's look at other pioneers. Um, one that 
you've been very high on as well. And I know uh, John Thorne has told me he's, he's, he's high on him as well. Um, Al Reach, he was a player, but it sounds like his his career and legacy goes way beyond that. Can you talk about Al Reach a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Reach is, and I, I agree with John. I think Al Reach, you know, maybe, I mean, I think he makes my top five here, you know, um, where to begin. I mean, he was a great ball player. I mean, I think he began playing, what, 1857. Uh, eventually, you know, he joins the athletics. Uh, uh, was it 1864 or 65? Um, you know, he, I think he's considered to be the first outward outwardly uh, pro you know people knew he was a pro but even though it was i think at the time it was still you know he couldn't be but he he was uh he was he had a he wasn't a i wouldn't say he was um early on he wasn't a, he wasn't a great player but by the time he was with the athletics he became one of the you know one of the top players in the game and i think uh you know one year he set a record for runs scored in the National Association of Baseball Player Clubs, and you know, uh, 18, uh, he had a great 1869 season. Um, he was a key contributor to the '71 Athletics that won the championship. Um, he was on the, Clipper, the New York Clipper All Star team in 1871. You know, so he, he was he was an outstanding player. He had, he definitely had uh, his moments as a star player. But then, you know, you bring in the fact that, you know, his 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 manufacturing company and his and his sporting goods store and that kind of thing. And then his partnership with Ben Scheib and producing, you know, um, the reach balls uh, for the American League. And and, you know, and then then you bring you bring up the fact that he founded the and he was the owner of the uh, Philadelphia franchise, which is now the Phillies. Um you know, he's with them and through 1903, he built ballparks, um, including um, the Baker Bowl, you know. Um, you know, he, he would be fallen. Definitely, I mean, he was an executive, but to me, he's more of a, he'd fall into the contributor pioneer category because, you know, he did a lot of pioneer things. He contributed, you know, the, the you know, the, the equipment, you know, the baseballs was just a big deal. You know, we could talk about Ben Shive a little bit, but um, I think no doubt that outreach belongs to the Hall of Fame. And it's kind of surprising that he's not. And really, he probably should have been elected uh, in the early years, you know, um, when Deacon should have been elected. Um, he, he was he was a very important figure in the history of baseball. Uh, how about Chris Vonderaha, the uh, <laughs> uh, der boss from the uh, American Association? Uh, he, he, we learned about him in, in those great books, The Beer and Whiskey League. Uh, gosh, uh, what can you tell me about Chris Vonderaha? Yeah, well, he, he was an owner, so I mean, you consider him an executive, but he was also, you know, some of the things he did was pioneering, you know, he's Bill Beck before Bill Beck and and Charlie fin o. Finley and, uh, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he brought beer to baseball, <laughs> right. you know, beer, and, 
I'm not, I'm not sure if he was the first to do ladies' days, but, you know, he brought innovations to the ballpark, made fans come. And, um, you know, he also uh, had winning teams, you know. Uh, his teams dominated. I mean, when they won four straight pennants, um, they won two World Series. So, I mean, he was very successful, you know. He, he – uh, He's a very interesting character in the history of the game, and I and I I, I see him in the mold of Bill Vec, and uh, I, I I think there's a place for him in the hall. Nice, yeah. I, I think I, a lot okay. of people, as you can see, I mean, a lot of the <laughs> I'm a big hall guy, but I, I I truly think that there's there's the pioneers and and, and is one of the areas that has been overlooked and that given enough attention to. And I also think the same can be said to um, pre-1920 black baseball. So um, as well as the 19, what, 70s and 80s players. But um, I could see Vonderai being a um, Hall of Fame. And he, he made the ballot in what, 2016. Um, he didn't get the four vote. He didn't get four votes. So we don't know how many votes he got, but he did make the ballot. Um, yeah, he made it he, in 2016 and Reach made it in 2013. So these are a couple of guys that actually have maybe a little bit of momentum. They're on the people's radar. Um, I, I don't know if they'll make it with um, the Negro Leagues being uh, available to pick from again. There's a lot of guys I love that are available. Uh, I can I can talk for about them as well. But um, Vonder, I probably wouldn't be in my top five because I think I'd put Reach first, probably because he came first and um, he has such a lengthy career in baseball. Um, um, I, w- I would favor Reach over Vonder at this point. Okay. Now, we have a lot of other 19th century candidates here that we could touch on. There's uh, Jim Mutry as, as manager. There's John Gaffney as an umpire. Are, are there any directions you'd like to go here with, with some of these names I am admittedly less familiar with? Um, sure. We can, let's see what we got here. So um, there's, there, I'll just throw some names out there. I don't, may not get into them too much, but these are important people in the history of the game. We have William Caldwell, you know, who uh, is the first publisher to get dedicated regular space to uh, baseball in the newspaper starting in 1853. He hired Henry Chadwick, you know, the, the national pastime phrase came from the Sunday Mercury in 1856. I mean, it, it, it was important um, individual. Um, we have Bill Kammeyer who owned the union grounds in, uh, in Williamsburg, New York, uh, you know, they put up a fence and charged the mission. You know, that uh, that was an innovation that is pioneering in the game. Um, well, let me see who else we got. We have uh, Colonel Thomas Fitzgerald, who was a co-founder of the Athletics of Philadelphia. He was their club president uh, until, until 1866 um, when he resigned. They had some conflicts there. Um, but... He, uh, you know, he was in favor of uh, integrating uh, interleague play with, uh, between uh, black teams and white teams, and 
he, uh, you know, uh, made that happen with the Pythians club. Um, um, he's definitely an interesting, uh, character in the history of the game. Um, Gaffney, you know, he, you know, he's clearly an umpire and that's the category I would list him under, but he was a pioneer, you know, he was, um, you know, he called the, the game from behind the batter, but then then would move and stand behind the pitcher's box once the runner got on. And that was, you know, they, they only had one umpire, you know, when he started out and they experimented with crews of two and so on and so forth. He was involved with, um, here's another one says here. Another innovation was to call bear fall, uh, fair or foul based on where it went over the fence instead of where it landed. You know, so, so he and he also, you know, he when he retired, he had uh, just faded in the most postseason games as an umpire in the 19th century. So, you know, he was an important umpire. Um, again, he, to me, he's a pioneer in that in in, in some sense. But you know, he, the category he fits into would be umpire. Mm-hmm. Um, um, another, another someone else that's interesting to me is. Uh, Hicks Hayhurst, who was a member of the athletics. Um, he was another, he was a player and then a director and, um, you know, he support, he supported, uh, um, the 15 club, uh, to, uh, join the, uh, Pennsylvania chapter of the national amateur association of baseball players. And then, you know, he, they end up having to withdraw their application. But, you know, he was a supporter of integrated ball play. Um, he's an interesting character in early baseball history. Um, let me see who else um, I may want to mention. Um, ben Scheib is someone that, to be honest with you, I haven't really championed Ben Scheib a lot, but I know the guys in Philadelphia love him. Um, but he... Um, he would play a really important role when it came to the, the equipment that with the, with the reach, um, company. He, I mean, he, um, he patented a lot of things and he, he invented the machine to wind baseballs, uh, to put holes in the baseball covers. Um, and you know, he was, he was, uh, um, he helped found the, uh, Philadelphia athletics with Connie Mack. And, and, you know, he built the, uh, shy park was built, uh, in 1909 and opened, but also in 1909, he patented Cork center baseball, um, you know, uh, which is important. Um, so Ben Scheib is another interesting character. He was an executive, but he also was an innovator when it came to equipment and especially baseballs. And, um, so he's someone that he was a pioneer and an executive. And if you look at, um, uh, you know, someone that is interesting to me is uh, Harry Stevens, you know, the concession uh, dude who, you know, brought, you know, peanuts and hot dogs and beer to the games, you know, started out in scorecards and, uh, and to, you know, baseball concessions began with, you know, with Harry Stevens, basically, um, or at least, at least the way it is today. Um, so he's definitely an interesting character as a contributor and pioneer. Um I think that's pretty much all I want to cover. Um, 
there are other less less characters in baseball history that are interesting to me, but the, you know that's pretty much pretty much it. Now we've looked a lot at the 19th century. Uh, you said that there are always pioneers in the game, and are there others from the first half of the century we should be looking at as well? I, I know that Buck O'Neill is one that. Uh, I don't know if pioneer is the correct word. I like your word contributor better, but uh, are there others that we could touch upon beyond Buck? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's others. I mean, um, you know, Scott mentioned lefty O'Doul. I mean, that, I mean, if you look at him as what he did as a hitter, I think he hit 349 for his career, mm. killed the ball, he had some monster seasons, but, you know, he didn't have that longevity um, to pad his career totals, but, you know, he did have influence on Japanese baseball and, so he, he's definitely an interesting contributor. Um, you know, I'm interested, you know, the, the uh, you know, the integration of the majors with Jackie Robinson, but, you know, Sam Lacey and Lester Rodney and Wendell Smith, these guys, <laughs> you know, really put the pressure on uh, the owners and the press, you know, to integrate the game. And, you know, Lacey and Wendell Smith have, uh, you know, their awards that they received in Cooperstown. But if, if there was a contributor category, I, I mean, the, the importance to their role in the game, I, you know, I, I consider it pioneering, you know, th- thank you to them to, to do what they did. Um, you know, also, and I don't know what, you know, how this would be addressed. And I don't think that it's going to happen this year, but, we have someone championing Maude Nelson for the Hall of Fame, um, and and Maude uh, is being cha- being championed by umpire and baseball starring Perry Barber and um, uh, Perry herself's a you know very well respected uh, uh, baseball umpire and um, and and she's very respected in the women's baseball committee for Sabre and she's getting behind Maude Nelson um, for the hall of fame. Now I have not given much thought to um, pioneers when in relation to women being part of the hall of fame. Um, Cause I'm not sure that um, based on the way the rules written that they're eligible because they didn't play major league baseball, but you know, that's all another discussion. I mean, the one curious thing I was looking at her, bi- her biography was that she was taught how to pitch by Jack Stivitz. So you're, you're one of our old friends, Jack Stivitz there. So, um, so I think it's very interesting that thinking outside the box that, you know, should non-major league people be eligible for the Hall of Fame. And that goes, you know, back to the Latin leagues and women in baseball that, we're pioneers. Um, it's very interesting something to think about. Yeah, that's a, a really great point. And there's, it, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, Scott referred to this as, you know, outsider baseball where it's, it's everything outside of the major leagues that has this really incredible story and was a huge part of the game uh, in the 19th century and the early uh, 20th century as well. When, you know, the, the game wasn't covered in, in the uh, like broadcast on the internet and everything for everyone to watch. So every town had their own team and we had teams coming from all different walks of life. So uh, 
really, really interesting stuff. Now, I think we're to the point now where I'm going to make you uh, settle down on your, your top five there. I, I jot down names that uh, you seemed interested in, and I only put down seven that you seemed strongly interested in. One of them was Barnes, so I'm not sure if you were, you were on uh, the fence about Barnes or, or not. But I have Adams, Fowler, uh, Grant Johnson, George Stovey, Dickie Pierce, Al Reach, and Barnes. So a couple of those two have to go, unfortunately. <laughs> well, Adams and Fowler are definite. And I really I think I would have to say um you know how it's it gets difficult because I really like uh Grant Johnson, George Stovey, uh Dickie Pierce and um I'll reach so yeah, you have a clear top six i noticed that <laughs> so maybe i won't do this to you i, I think top six is good <laughs> well did anyone pick grant johnson did it, scott didn't pick grant johnson i don't think right i don't think so no so i, I know scott i and grant johnson but i i don't i think i wrote it down somewhere he um his top five he had beckwith and scales and Dick Lundy, who I love, Dick Lundy, Bobby Moore, and uh, Candy Jim Taylor. So no, he didn't have uh, uh, Grant Johnson. Um, All right, I'm letting you pick six because you have a few extra decades to worry about. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll leave it at that then. All right, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was enlightening for me. I know we've talked about a lot this a lot over the years. But uh, sitting down and going through the candidates was was definitely uh, a lot of fun and really interesting for me. And I hope the uh, the listeners learn a, a lot more names than maybe they knew before and just saw, again, the extent of how many possible candidates there are for, for this election and why I'm stressed out about picking 10 and who they'll pick for 10 and, and why I did this podcast. So thanks again for coming on. Sure. And, I, and getting that down to 10 is, is not an easy task. I know. I'm very curious to see uh, who will be on that final 10, because I'll, I'll guarantee one thing. I'm going to be mad about it no matter what. <laughs> I'm guessing there's not going to be any umpires on it. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> uh, all right. Where can people uh, follow you or learn more about your work or or have anything to plug? Let them know. Um, I am on Twitter. Um and I don't even, my, my handle is at L heads gridiron. I used to have a football website, which was the sister um, site of uh, seams heads called Leatherheads of the gridiron. So that's my handle. Um, but I believe tomorrow um, on our game, uh, John Thorne's blog, there's going to be um, an article about um, that. I wrote about the images of uh, George Stowe. I discovered. So that's what's happening next. And um, I hope, uh, we can find uh, more images of Stovey and others that we, we don't have pictures of. And um, so I'm interested to see what people's reactions are to some of these photos. All right. Thank you so much again, Joe. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get this out tomorrow. So it should be the day that the, uh, the article drops on our game. So keep a lookout for that. And we'll be back soon with episode five, where we're going to talk to Graham Womack about non-players. So we're going to look at some managers umpires and executives so uh thanks again for listening and we'll be back soon